hey, don't you know, don't forget us. This is not going to be there's there's people suffering here, and this is going to be horrible, and you're not going to forget us. And I think in in many ways that strategy has worked. It's interesting you say that, Sat, because in the early days after October the seventh last year, in trying to understand what the reasoning might be, given what would be the obvious retort. That kind of immiseration theory was one that appealed to me and still does to try to explain that you would accept terrible cost in return for the end of invisibilization and in return for a recognition of a campaign of destruction that's been going on for decades, but has been intensifying quite radically in the last decade. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and and being invisible to most of the world, and it's now not invisible. So, um, I mean, I, I I I don't I haven't I haven't read anything or seen anything from what Hamas wanted to do, but so just reading from the outside, like you know, what what are they? But I mean, essentially, I think what they said was, um, um, we you know we don't really care what the rest of the world thinks, because you know the rest of the world has done nothing anyway. It's not as though people who understood what was going on, you know, were, that this was central to their, you know, to their politics. Um, and so I think the real, I think the real, um, uh, what they were trying to do was really get to, like, to Israel. That's, that's, that was the major, um, the major people they were, they were, you know, trying to get a message to. And I think they got it. So, and the world will never be the same again. That's the, you know, that's. Um, and where it goes, it's on, you know, with Ukraine. I mean, you know, who knows, with India and Pakistan, you know, with, I mean, there's a, there's a whole load of tensions, of course, around the world. And when you have nuclear weapons involved, it's, um, you know, the doomsday clock has never been as closer to midnight as it is now. Um, but it, and again, for, uh, what I find interesting is people in the West, don't, I mean, nuclear weapons have kind of dropped off. The you know dropped off visibility. Then people don't even think about it. I mean, I, I talk about it to my students, um, and just kind of you know, I'm not I'm not saying the world is going to end tomorrow, but it's like okay, this is there's a there's huge number, there's thousands of nuclear weapons, and only a few of them need to go off, and the end of the world will come. Um, and it's going to be you know the the tensions that that set something off even accidentally, and these are not rational people who are in charge here. Um, that that's the situation you know we're in. Um, I mean, I, I think that, that I've, um, I mean, I have kind of you know notions of apocalypse and end of the world on my mind because I, I did two films. I did a film called Advertising and the End of the World about twenty years ago, and then I did another one a few years ago called Advertising at the Edge of the Apocalypse. And you know, we're, we're really that's we're really in this you know clusterfuck. Of, of you know climate change, <laughs> of, uh, of militarism, um, of, you know economic debt, economic crisis, inequality. That is just tough to see how to get it. How we're going to get out of. One of the things so can be such a downer, but I, I you know I, I try and be hopeful. I mean, I try and remember Gramsci's you know pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the world. But it's tough to think about the optimism of the world these days. One of the things that's been striking in the resumption of this podcast series, which I ran pretty regularly between 2010 and 2016, and then ceased for reasons of both personal and professional upheaval, only restarted 
in the wake of Gaza, but that's a coincidence, is that there are terms that a lot of people are using who are our age and younger, which are hope and despair, hope and despair. And people who in the past would only have talked about hope are now talking about despair. I think it's fair to say. At the same time, people look for what Raymond Williams called resources of hope, right? And uh, they are there. Uh, I think of the Palestinian journalists and citizen journalists, if we can accept that term, who are recording some of what's going on. I think of the social movements around the world that are in protest, as you mentioned, that there are people who are really in out outraged by what is going on. And of course, when it comes to climate change, in addition to the horrors of corporate and governmental malfeasance, there are very important social movements and significantly social movements that may not be led by scientists, but are informed by them, that are having an impact on consciousness. So I'm the first one to be dystopic, but I also mm -hmm. see glimmers such of hope. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, that's a, you can't be pessimistic. You can't, you can't have an analysis that's pe only pessimistic because that takes you nowhere. And so you have to keep struggling. And, you have, and what keeps struggling is that that's, you know, the, the, the social change has only ever come from people struggling in the most extreme circumstances and against the most extreme kind of odds. You know, I, uh, near the end of his life, I did an interview with with Stuart Hall. Actually, I think it was the last interview that he did on on, on tape on film. Um, and um, I, you know, and he, he said, you know, when we were talking, he said, you know, he got he went back to Gramsci, and he said, you know, uh, the optimism of the intellect. Um, uh, sorry. <laughs> pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the world. And he said, yeah, the two sides are connected. Uh, you know, you, the, the, the pessimism of the intellect is you've got to understand the world the best that can be understood. No, without without filters, without jargon, you just got to really understand its complexity and its contradictions. And and if it's depressing, well, if it makes you, doesn't make you feel you sleep well at night, that's too bad. That's where the analysis takes you. But you need that to know where the weaknesses are. You need to know what the system is, and if you want to change it, what you have to do. And that's the that's the optimism of the will. And so the two things are together. And so for me, you know, it, it, even though I feel pessimistic, I keep doing my work. Um, you know, I, mean, I have no illusions that change will come while I'm alive. But I know that if you know people like you and me don't keep doing what we're doing right now there will be absolutely no hope i mean it's not going to be inevitable but there will be absolutely no chance of anything happening in um you know in in, in the future now speaking of your work this is it's not just it's not just pessimism and optimism i, I have a strange combination they're both at the same time <laughs> you know um but... well sp speaking of your work prof it's got multiple dimensions that I'd love to hear you talk about. It's got political economy and cultural studies to the extent that we can regard them as distinct. Yeah. Something to talk about. It involves doing, in a sense, conventional academic analysis, books and articles, appearing on the Today Show with Justin, where you're brutally silenced, 
and <laughs> the old just told you about it. <laughs> and the old boy has the worst mullet of the late twentieth century. <laughs> it <laughs> it also involves actually one can find that somewhere on YouTube, I think. But you you just sit there. You're not you're not to be spoken to. No, no, I, I found it. I found it recently and sent it to Justin. <laughs> okay, I guess that's where I got it from. Yeah. Probably. Um, I, I, I look like his minder, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> it also takes the form, as you mentioned, of making films. And there's a vast archive now through the Media Education Foundation. So I wondered if before we talk about political economy and cultural studies, you could speak uh, for a bit about the MEF and what it does. Many people will be familiar with its materials through teaching contexts or activist ones, but how did it start and how's it changed? Yeah, I mean, like all these things, you know, there, there is there was no great plan for it. You know, it happened by accident. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I've told this story many times. I'll try to do it quickly. Uh, you know, it, it, it really it started as me as a teacher. Um, I was teaching at the University of Massachusetts. I was teaching these large classes. Um, and I was trying to figure out, okay, how do you get people to think about, you know, their environment? You know, the old Marshall McLuhan line about we're not too sure who discovered water, but we're pretty sure it wasn't the fish. How do you get the fish to pay attention to these the sea of images, you know, that they're, you know, that they're floating in? And at the time when I first started teaching, uh, what was central to the culture was MTV. MTV had just started. And there was a debate about images of women on MTV. I mean, some of the early, some of the early videos were. And so I started, that's what I was teaching. I was trying to look at, okay, how do you get young people to think, to get some distance from this world? Um, and so I started develop, I, I used to bring in videos. I used to bring in literally, I used to take a, v, a v, VCR. Uh, if, if some of you, some people remember that, but not many people remember that. You know, I used to tape videos and I would bring them in and then I would play one and then I would take it out of the machine and I would put another one in. And I realized when I was doing that, that the moment you take it out of the machine, you know, you're in front of a class of 200 people. Um, and the moment that you want to say, okay, I'm going to go from this video to the other, you've lost the class. Mm -hmm. They start talking, whatever. And so I, that, that was the first time I got into editing. I started then to put things down on, you know, to talk, okay, I, I'm not going to lose the class. So the pedagogy was actually at the center of it. I started to do video initially to make sure my, make sure the pedagogical environment um, was going to be under my control. Then eventually, uh, you know, I, I kept doing this and eventually I produced a kind of standalone piece, uh, which was called Dream Worlds, which was about images of women on MTV. Um, and this was just me as a, I mean, I was just a, you know, I was an assistant professor at this time <laughs> in my first job. Um, and I thought, well, if it's useful to me, perhaps it might be useful to some other people. Um, and I got some, a little small bit of money from the department and we did a mailing to other um, communication departments, women's studies departments. And, you know, people started getting it and using it a little bit. Um, and it mostly would have remained like that, except that the major thing that happened was uh, I got a letter from MTV Networks, from Viacom, actually, from, you know, from the parent company, uh, which was a cease and desist letter that said that demanded that I cease and desist what I was doing because I was using copyright materials. Um, and I wrote back to them and said, actually, no, I'm not using, you know, there is something in, in, in the law called fair use that allows 
the use of copyrighted materials for you know purposes of education and criticism. Um, and so this happened, and 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 the letter came both to myself and to the university lawyers. And the university lawyers essentially said, "We think you're covered, but we don't want you to say anything. We don't want you to make a statement. We don't want you to, you know." And I said, "That's crazy! Like this is a moment to talk about academic freedom and, um, you know, and and cultural property, etc." And they and they said, "If you do, you're not going to be covered by us. You're not going to be covered by university lawyers." So that was a moment in which I had to make a decision, and I decided, "Okay, this this is." So I set up the I set up the Media Education Foundation initially. To separate myself from the university, um, um, and to, to distribute one tape, <laughs> and then it went from there. You know, and in in hindsight, it was the best decision I ever made because it gave me independence. I didn't, you know, I I love universities. I think universities are, but they're 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 not a great place to you know do collective work. Partly because you know, when it goes through committees and everything, everything gets watered down. And so, and I, we wouldn't have been able to do the, the subjects we've been doing if we had stayed within the university. For example, we wouldn't have been able to do. We've done a, a number of films on uh, on Israel Palestine from a critical perspective, and we would never have been able to do that if it remained within within the university. Initially, it was to separate myself from the university, and it gave me independence to do you know what I wanted to do in the. Uh, and then I had to start to worry about the business. Then it was about, okay, how do I, how do I make this operate? And uh, and then we function as a business. We function, we make films, and we sell them because there is this. And and it, it only MEF only works, only works because we produce things that are useful to teachers. We produce things that are useful to people to use in their classrooms. Um, and to the extent that we've carried on, you know, we, we've now got a. a um, a collection of over 150 you know, films. Um, to the extent that we can still support ourselves, is because you know educators are using our films, um, and they're in libraries, and you know they're on, um, in, you know, in, in the central system. So that that's the short version. I mean, we yeah. that's, that's a slide, and it, and it grew from there. You have a distinguished editorial or advisory board, and you have about half a dozen people working at the foundation. Right. So, yeah. Well, we, at, at, at our peak uh, in the late '90s and early uh, 2000, we had about 15 people working there. Um, we're now down, down to about eight people who work at who work there. Yeah. You know, so it's a it's a, it's a small organization. Uh, you know, our budget is you know in the like 1.5 million range, uh, but it all comes through sales. Uh, so we ha- we have to keep we have to produce things that are useful to people. <laughs> That are useful yeah. to you know to teachers. There are times when markets work reasonably well. <laughs> yeah, well, the U.S. is a particular market. That's the thing. It couldn't it couldn't have happened anywhere else. The U.S. educational market is relatively large, and it's stable and it has budgets. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it MEF would not have worked, for example, in in the U.K. because there's just the, the the market is not there. The budgets are not there. In fact, people often ask me, people, a number of, you know, through years, people have said, like, I'm interested in doing something like this, you know, like, how do I do it? And um, when I said, look, this is what the reality is, right? The reason we were able to do it <laughs> was because, you know, at that time, there's this large market. And also, we were the only game in town. 
Yeah, then no one else, there were, almost no one was making films, uh, you know, thinking about this. Nowadays, there's a lot of people making films. Uh, in one sense, the means of production have been democratized. Uh, the means of you know making stuff has been democratized, and so you don't need a million dollars to make a film. You know, to, you can you, you can okay, you know the DSLR camera costs you you know a few thousand dollars. You have Premiere Pro, and you know you can make a film. <laughs> uh, so the 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 the, 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 me, the means of, of being democratized. I don't think it's made films any easier to do because you still have to have. You know, the conceptual vision of, of how you put together a narrative, how you put together a story, uh, etc. Um, uh, but but I think that's that's what one of the things that's changed is we're not the only game in town. There's lots of people now making you know making videos, and we distribute some of those as well. Were you an autodidact when it came to filmmaking, starting in terms of script, camera editing? Yeah, I, everything I did was I taught myself, and but it came as I said, it came out of te- it came out of pedagogy. Mm. You know, when I first started teaching, there was a there was a tape to tape, a VHS tape to tape editing thing in the department, and so that's where I started doing it. I, you know, I had these fifty tapes on one hand, and I and I, in fact, I think there's great value to that. You know, it's just like I mean, I, I would actually advise people, you know, if you want to learn editing, um, to to but there's something about not being able to do it instantly digitally. Okay, because you have to. I mean, I, actually, I remember Stuart Hall once was talking to me about um, that he thought he became a worse writer when he started to type. Oh no, when the computer came along, he said when he was on a type when he was typing, um, you really have to think your sentence through before you put it on paper because it's so difficult to change, <laughs> and so you have to think about language, you have to think about everything. Whereas you know, in a computer, you just put down the first thing, and it could be rubbish. But then you're starting working with rubbish, and he, he thought actually it made him uh, made him a worse um, writer, which is difficult to see given how eloquent he was throughout <laughs> throughout his entire life. But I think there's there's value to learning on you know on analog, which is what mm-hmm. I did, and, then, and so I, I I was part of the actually I was talking about this to a friend of mine yesterday. You know that our generation, I mean, we went from in in, in terms of technology, we're most probably kind of unique. Like for writing, you know, we went from writing on paper, you know, to writing on laptops um, in a in a very short period of time. Uh, the same way with editing, you know, I started off with you know VHS on tape to tape, and now we're you know everyone is on uh, is on nonlinear editing on on computers. But that's a relatively short short, you know. And I was there. I mean, I went through that transition, uh, and I'm glad I went through that transition. I think the transition made me learn. Made me really think about editing in a way that I wouldn't have done otherwise. A couple but in answer to the question, yeah, it was, it was all self-learning. It was all. Yeah. A couple of the conversations I've had with photographers in the series, Gillian Edelstein and Alice Thompson, have seen them talk about adapting absolutely to digital work. But actually, when it comes to projects that they are very invested in and where they think they've done some of their best work, it's still analogic. Yeah, and sometimes that involved those sorts of transitions involve re-educating yourself or going back to things you'd almost forgotten. Technically, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, no, I mean technology doesn't always improve things and uh, it changes things aesthetically. And, I mean, even in music, you know, people are going back to vinyl, right? 
they realize <laughs> that the, the, the digital sound is different than the sound of a needle on a you know going across across some plastic it's it's a just a different tonal thing so people are going back to you know i, th- I think what has been lost in, in this transition I, i'm not going to go back to take the tape editing but <laughs> <laughs> nostalgia only gets you so far sat in one of the big department stores near where i live in madrid in the technology section there's a reasonably sizable selection of very expensive portable record players. Little ones yeah. would only play 45s and 78s that would be powered by a battery and put in the back of a family car in the 60s. Not in Spain, because they probably couldn't have had that technology here then, but in the wealthier parts of the global north. And these things are going for hundreds of euros. And yeah, it's uh, like... Um, I think you know, people are making the transition back to the old, you know, the old dump phone as well. Yeah. You know, you know. It's really interesting. Yeah, technology, I mean, technology can, is, does not always move forward in, in a kind of linear way. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about that I mentioned briefly earlier, Sat, is some kind of relationship between political economy and cultural studies. I wondered if you could talk a bit about that yeah sure um i mean actually i i think i um i was kind of one of the first people starting to work on this that said this division makes no sense whatsoever <laughs> you know that you can't think of political economy and cultural studies as separate things you can't think of culture as you know there's this material side and then there is a kind of you know some kind of symbolic cultural side so the two things are always mixed. I mean, that they're, they they're internally mixed together. Um, and so for me, if you know, it wasn't I the two I I thought about myself as as doing cultural studies, but from a Marxist perspective. You know, and Marx would yeah, you know, Marx would have been would have been outraged at thinking that you know Marxism was just going to be about the material political economy. Okay, I mean, he knew how central political economy was to the culture of an organization. To the culture of a, of, a, of a social formation, to the culture of a conjuncture, uh, and that you had to you had to think about them in an integrated way. You know, not that if you look at political economy here and cultural studies there, but you look at them in this kind of integrated whole. Uh, so I, I think actually I was one of the first. I mean, there's a number of people doing this, but I think I was one of the first people um, to really do it. Um, and I, I remember it, I was actually uh, I was at a conference in. Um, it would have been in the late 80s. I was in a conference in Taiwan. And um, one of the like one of the great political economists, I, I, I'm not going to name him, I won't say who, who it is, but one of the great people in, you know, founding fathers of, of, of political economy communication uh, was there. And I was talking to him and, you know, I was, I was starting to do some work with Stuart. And I said, you know, Stuart did, um, and he just looked at me puzzled. He said, oh, he, he just does this, you know, it's non-political stuff, right? It's got nothing to do with. And it's clear he had never engaged with, you know, with the work of people like, you know, like, like British cultural studies and, you know, and, Stu- and Stuart. And then think about how those, you know, how the things were connected. Um, and that was, I think, for a long time. That was, that, that's how political economy and cultural studies, you know, got, was ripped apart. And then I think there was a period um, where they came together. And I think that's the heyday of Birmingham. I think that is policing the crisis, 
which for me is the masterwork of, uh, you know, of that period of cultural studies. And it's that mixture. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's that thinking about how culture is connected to the economic crisis that conjunctures are undergoing and how, how cultural transformation and anxiety is essentially part of that transition from, from social welfare capitalism to, you know, to, to neoliberalism. Um, but then I think after that, and then, and Stuart talks about this in this interview that I did with him, he said, mm. you know, that there was that, and, and that was when, essentially when Marxism, I mean, it wasn't that, it, it wasn't like Marxism as like, you have to be a Marxist, but as you know, cult, early cultural studies was about having a conversation with Marxism and the, without Marxism, you couldn't. And so and as Stuart said, he came into Marxism backwards. It was kind of, you know, he was. But it, he had to, the, the 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 questions had to be posed, and you have to you have to struggle with them. And, and as Stuart said, he said that was in that period, and then in the intervening period, the two things have, come, have become split again. <laughs> um, you know, and culture is seen as this kind of autonomous realm and high, high theory, etc. Um, and yeah, he he was he was not in a very pessimistic mode when I, I spoke to him in two thousand and twelve. And he said, "Yeah, we're not in a great place right now. Cultural studies is not in a great place right now to to move forward to the project of cultural studies, uh, or to move forward with the political project, um, because we've." And I think that's that was one of the reasons why they um, why he wanted to reprint, or we have the second edition of Policing the Crisis, was to go back and to say, "Look, this is partly how you do it. This is partly." You know, it's not that you just you can just reproduce what police in the crisis was about, but police in the crisis is kind of a model, methodological and theoretical text of how you would do this. So how, and he and he, he was you know quite pessimistic as to what the future was going to hold in terms of whether cultural studies was going to have it was going to be able to engage those questions again, the questions of power uh, and the questions of contradiction uh, again. I think it can. I mean, then that's that's what I. Um, I'm actually one of the films. One of the films in the back of my mind that I'm going to work on. You know, when you get to my age, you know, I kind of think okay, I've got about ten years left of you know where my mind might you know, be working properly. And so you really have to start thinking about okay, what are the projects you want to do in that time? It's no longer a case where you can do everything, and you really have to start thinking about okay, there are what what, what do you want to read? Really want to focus on? Actually, and one of the things I want to do is I want to do a uh, I want to do a film. Or a project, I don't know what it'd be, but a project that is policing the crisis for the United States. Policing the crisis for... And I think it's, you know, it wouldn't be reproducing policing the crisis, uh, but it would be using, as I said, the methodological and theoretical framework that it, it, it adopts to understand, I think, why the American prison system is like it is. And why America is as... Uh, as Louis Laquant said, you know, the first prison society in history. I don't think that's an accident. I, th- I think that's the same way that, you know, Stuart and his colleagues talked about policing the crisis. Uh, I think policing the crisis has taken this horrible form in the United States where they decided to lock up a potentially revolutionary class in the prisons. You know, black people's labor is no longer required. It, it was required. It was required in slavery. It was required in Jim Crow. It was required in the early years of industrialization. But neoliberalism has meant that black labor is no longer required in the same way. So what are you going to do with them? What are you going to do with these, you know, with these millions of people who you no longer require and who could become the basis for a revolutionary force, as they did in the 60s? 
I mean, the, the revolutions and the, the revolts in the cities, I mean, that's an indication of what was, they, yeah, they built a, a gulag to lock people away for a long, long time. But that's in, that's also in my mind. My mm. mind is also, <laughs> okay, how do you understand, uh, how do you understand the present culture of neoliberalism um, in all its dimensions, um, and especially around politics and around the rise of fascism and race, um, using using those theoretical perspectives, using the notion of conjuncture. One of the things that he says in that conversation with you is that sociology claims to be predictive, but normally can't or won't or doesn't manage to do that. But that he felt on reflection 30 odd years later that policing the crisis had managed to predict what he and others came to call Thatcherism very shortly afterwards. Yeah, that, I mean, that's when he said, we, 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 yeah, I mean, that, I mean, he said that it will change in government. <laughs> it wasn't like there was something transformational, something fundamental was going on. And I think they were able to do it because they looked at it in this conjunctural way. This is, a, this is not just the normal politics. Some real has changed. The, the, the organization of the social formation the organization of ideology, the economic crisis, globalization, all this has created something. Thatcher, Thatcher hooked onto it. Thatcher was able to figure it out. You know, I, I don't think, I mean, I think he also says at some point, you know, she's not, he's not sure whether Thatcher ever read Gramsci, but she embodied Gramsci <laughs> in terms of common sense and how to move ordinary people along. You know, I, I, I just as a side story um so this was in so i, I did an ma um so i did a, my ba was in, at, at the university of york uh, york university sorry in you know in in, in england um as opposed to the one in canada <laughs> um, and i did an ma there as well in sociology um just after i and my thesis actually was um was a an analysis of an interview that Margaret Thatcher did on Granada TV, mm. uh, where she used for the first time, she used the term swamping. And it was like, you know, the, the problem with immigration is not just it's a problem of numbers, but our culture is being swamped. So it was the first time that, that a kind of a mainstream politician, you know, not Enoch Powell, not, not someone on the, it's a mainstream politician was using the language of race in that way. Um, and I said, I mean, actually, that's my, my thesis was on that. And I, I said, this is a trans. I, 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 I didn't obviously know all the other, you know, I was a you know, 22-year-old or whatever uh, at that time. I, I did, but I, I thought that was, she had made that respectable. She had brought race and racism into the discourse in a way that had never been done before. And in, and, and in subsequent work and in Police in the Crisis, uh, which I hadn't read yet because it hadn't actually, you know, they was they were still working on it. Um, but in Police in a the Crisis, they then, you know, looked at how that that respectability um, worked in terms of race and racism becoming kind of the, the central ideological uh, mechanism to control the crisis that was developing. Um, I ask you something. Yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, just going, going back to the second year, I was an undergrad. I was at, at York, 
I got this video to it. So I get a um, tape um, copy of the of the interview from Granada TV. And I remember when I got it, there was no place to play it at York <laughs> except in one one laboratory somewhere. And so I had to go, you know, I mean, just the just the technology part of it. And it wasn't even VHS. It was, you know, something <laughs> beyond. But so I was in, I've been involved in trying to figure out technology for, you know, for a long, long time. <laughs> Sat, I wanted to ask you an autobiographical question, if I may. So you're a South a- of South Asian extraction with an East African background, but also very British, I think. Yeah. Well, your experience in Britain and your families in terms of racism, how was that, may I ask? Yeah, I mean, you know, all these things are very particular, right? And so for, for my, so it's, a, it's to do with my history. So in my history, so I was born in Kenya to Indian parents who were there. Um, and my mother was born in Kenya as well because her grandfather came across to build the railway in Kenya. <laughs> and so there's that, you know, labor transition from India to, to Kenya and to, you know, to East Africa. Um, and so I, that's where I was. And then we moved to England in 1962. Uh, I mean, I, I was told we were coming for a holiday, and then the next thing I know, we were. You know, this is where we were living. <laughs> um, actually, I I, 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 I just recently found out. That also, I mean, the reason we stayed was actually it, it was, you know, essentially an act of racism. You know, my father um, said he didn't want to go back to Africa, didn't want to go back to Kenya and be work under an African. And at that time, the Lancaster House uh, talks were just going on while we were in England, <laughs> you know, the talks of independence. And so he decided to, so I've always been, I was just told this recently by, you know, my, you know, by, by my family. And it's like, wow, this, this whole history has been triggered by, you know, this essentially, you know, this act that's based upon race. <laughs> um, um, so I, so that, that was in 62. And this was before the big migrations. So which we were, were in, 10 years later in the 70s when some of the newly independent East African nations either expelled formally or urged South Asians to depart. Yeah. Right. So, well, there, there were two there were two migrations or two uh, you know, exoduses or one was in 68. And that was from Kenya, where the Kenyan government said they gave they gave, uh, uh, you know, the Asians the, the, a choice, the South Asians a choice. You either take Kenyan citizenship or you take British citizenship. So actually, it was not an expulsion in Kenya. In Kenya, it was, you know, people had to kind of decide. And a lot of my family, uh, you know, stayed actually and became, you know, quite quite wealthy and, you know, successful um, because they were the business class. <laughs> um, but at my family, a lot of people did leave. So that was in 68. Uh, by the time that happened, you know, I was already in England. So I already, I already was the only Indian kid in my class. You know, uh, I've been there for six years. So my initial experience was as a kind of, I wouldn't, I mean, it was, it was not as a threat, but it was as the exotic. Yeah, because I was the only one. <laughs> and then in 68, you know, things changed. And in 72, that was when the Idi Amin expulsion in Uganda happened. And so that happened even more. Um, but I remember in 68, I remember there, there were 15 people. We, we lived in this little house in Mitcham, you know, in, in, in South London. Um, there were 15 people living in, in this house, you know, because because of the initial, you know, the, the, when they first came in from, from Kenya. 
So and that changed. So I, I kind of try, I experienced this notion of going from essentially being seen as exotic or, you know, different, but not a threat to being seen as then a threat to being seen and then, and then to become, you know, in to become a packy. I mean, that was the that the packy was the the word that was you you know even though it's not a descriptive word, it was again just the word. I mean, I remember um, I, I was trying to explain. My, my, uh, me and my mother were watching a television at one point. You know, they, they used to have these shows uh, after the the news at six o'clock. They'd have these local shows, and they, I remember we what there was and it was in this sort of in 1970, I think. Um, and um, they would have these skinheads on. They had two skinhead, skinheads on talking about packy bashing. Right? And this was something, you know, relatively new. And, you know, my mother looked at me and, and, they, and she said to me, she said, I hope they don't think you're a Pakistani, you know, because you're not a Pakistani. I said, I don't think this, that, I don't think that's really how this works. They're not going to get asked for your passport before they beat the, you know, the shit out of you. <laughs> um, but that was, the, that was the development of, you know, packy is the development of, of, of that notion of threat that comes as a result of of, um, of these migrations from you know, the previous colonies I mean again you know, as Stuart says just when the, just when the just when Britain is trying to cut the umbilical cord you know people from the empire from the colonies arrive and said you always said it was a mother country well <laughs> here we are well, and there was course- that great expression my two favorite expressions from the 70s uh, we are here because you were there. Yeah. It was an, an important Marxist, black and and Asian Marxist organizing trope in Britain. And the other one, which was a bumper sticker around the globe, visit the United States before it visits you. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that was I mean that I think and that's part of the you know the, the coming apart of, of of the conjuncture of social welfare at the same time that you know the, the imperial model is changing as well. And the great migrations that then you know affected as, as well. So I mean that that was why, uh, and, and in many ways, you know, one of the reasons I left, um, not left. I mean, I just wanted to explore the world. But you know, England at that time was a, you know, was not a very hospitable place to you know to an Asian kid, especially uh, you know a young, an Indian kid who thought of himself as British. That I really thought of myself as you know that I was actually more British than anything else. And I used to. I mean, it was a very strange experience. Yeah, I used to we 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 talked briefly earlier, or you mentioned briefly earlier on about football, and you know um, what bonded me to England as you know as a kind of Englishman um, was was Chelsea was my support of Chelsea, and I went to a Chelsea game, you know, when I was nine years old. Um, it's at Stamford Bridge. Uh, we lost one 0 to Liverpool, as I remember. <laughs> um, but you know that that, that 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 kind of bonded me with England, and so I would go to Chelsea games, and I would stand in the shared end, you know, which is where the, these hooligans stand. So I was in the middle of all these skinheads, you know, with with me and my you know my brown skin. And so it was it was a very contradictory um, you know experience that I had, um, you know, and, and, and you know people and I. I Going to away games, going to you know, we, I remember going to an Arsenal game. Um, you know, someone you know kicking me, you know, with a with a, with an epithet, and then uh, you know being chased through the markets in West Ham <laughs> the same way. So it was both like this is home, but it's not home. This is home, but a lot of people don't think this is where I belong. 
I think that is really changed. I think there is a new, the, you know the new generations of uh, of Asian kids and and West African uh, West Indian kids and African kids, and also I think there's been a big change in English, you know, white English as well. That they they know that Englishness is something that is not just the old pure whiteness. <laughs> that the that the new cosmopolitanism actually is what England is now. Um, now, in fact, Paul Gil- Paul Gilroy tells his story. He says, you know. Um, so I'm, I'm also working on a film with Paul. I'm trying to. I'm, I'm working on a film on the Black Atlantic. So I have an interview with Paul. And I'm trying to figure out how best to kind of tell that story in a accessible way. And you know, Paul says he was at a you know a few years ago he was you know standing in line at a you know at a post office. <laughs> um, you know, there were other people, and and then something, and the woman next to him, you know, this issue of race came up, and the woman next to him looked at him and said, "No, you're one of us. You're one of us." Um, and so that, that that has changed. That wouldn't have been the case, you know, when, when I when I um, w- w- was growing up. So I've always had this like kind of inside outside relationship wherever I've been. Uh, and then then I went to Canada, you know. And again, you're on the out. You're British, but not really British. You're Indian. You're not really Indian in this new context. Um, so I've always lived on the edge. I think always lived. My identity has always been on the edge, and I've. You know, and and racism has always been part of it, but not not but not all of it. It's not it's not all of it. No, thank you very much. I appreciate that. We're we're friendly, but we're not intimates, and so asking a very personal question like that is a bit of a leap. So I appreciate very much your frankness and generosity. So we've got about ten minutes left, and I don't want to take up too much of your time because I know that the ocean calls. <laughs> I had two more questions. I can, hear it, I can I can hear the ocean. <laughs> I've got two more questions, and then I'd like to throw it to you to add to or subtract from, as it were, anything that we've talked about, if there are issues that we haven't addressed that you'd like to. Okay? So before yeah. that, just a couple of queries from me, if I may. The first is to ask how you find shit out, how you do the research for your cultural production. Because I look back to your many books and articles and I can see how you got to where you got and what you did. Uh, Your terrific book with Justin Lewis on The Cosby Show, for example, is very explicit. This is what we did. This is how we did it. Right. Mixture of cultural history and ethnography and analysis of content and so on. When it comes to your films, how do you go about doing the research. I mean, it's one thing to read The Black Atlantic. It's another to make a film about it. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, mostly, I mean, we, have, we do two kinds of films. We do films that are based on the work of a single author. So, for, so for, the, for example, with, uh, with the project I'm doing with Paul, I have a couple of interviews that I did with Paul. And so it's a matter of, okay, this is... And so what we're trying to do there is translate the book into a different form. Okay, the, in one sense, the work has already been done, and what I'm trying to do now is I can figure out how do you translate from one form to another, because uh, it's not that's not an easy thing to go from you know to go from from book to video. Uh, and for me, that's you know the the influence of Stuart Stuart Hall. I mean, in talk when I talk and talking, I might. The name Stuart Hall keeps coming up, and that's not a you know that's not an accident. And I think one of the things that you know Stuart um, uh, alerted me to, you know, when he, he was talking about what the project of 
socialist transformation was going to be about because I was always the project. The project wasn't just about understanding the world. The project, well, project wasn't just about coming up with new ways of understanding culture. The project was socialist transformation. How do we make this a better world? <laughs> and Stuart thought that the intellectual function was absolutely central, and but you had to make work that was produced in one context in the academy accessible in another. You had to translate it into a form that where you didn't have to be an expert <laughs> to understand what was going on. And in one sense, that's what drives the Media Education Foundation. Uh, when we start making films, me, in, in the back of my mind, you know, I, I always start with the audience. And in the back of my mind, there is this 18-year-old kid in an American classroom sitting there. <laughs> and my question is, can I, can I say something that will make him look up from his you know, phone <laughs> and pay attention? And so it's always about how do you engage people in a language that they understand in terms that they understand. Uh, so, that, so that's the question of translation. Uh, in terms of, so that's one kind of film that we do. And the research there is pretty straightforward. We just talk to the main, you know, the main person that, you know, who's in this. And, and we've done that a lot. You know, I've, I've done interviews with, I mean, some of my favorite films are that. I, I did a, I did a film with, with Stuart. I've done lots of films with, we did a film with, um, uh, Edward Said, which for a lot of people is kind of their introduction to the work of Edward Said and Orientalism. Uh, you know, we worked with Bell Hooks. We've worked, I said, I, I'm not going to list them, but we worked with, with a lot of people. But we also make what we could talk about as kind of, you know, more standard documentary films, uh, where it's not just one voice, where you're really looking at a subject. Uh, so, you know, I, I mean, I'll talk about the Israeli Palestinian conflict, you know, which we've, we've done two films on that. Uh, and the first part is just doing the research. Okay, we're talking about media uh, coverage of it. So you've got to do, like, what is the media coverage? And so it means you're doing not, you're not doing, um, you know, uh, kind of standard, you know, systematic research in the way that you would in a, in a, in a academic project, you know, with, with, with content analysis and, you know, and categories, et cetera. But you're, you're looking at, uh, you're looking at, 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 you know, large amounts of, video, large amounts of news stories, and coming up with the themes, coming up with what the narratives are. So that's just research. You've just got to figure out what that is. And then, secondly, you then find the experts, the people who have already done the work on that, and you interview them. Um, and you get, the, you, you, get their, okay, their, you get their best translation of their work into a video form. And then the hard work after that. How do you put it together in a in a coherent way? And that's you know that's that's the work of, I mean that's what all writers do. I mean that's ultimately you've got to write things down on paper that makes sense to, you know to. I mean again on this I go back to Marx on this. You know um, I was you know, I always have to Marx I always have to think of. I mean there's a difference between kind of the mode of analysis, which is the moment of research. Like that's the that's the pessimism of the intellect. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, and for Marx, that was if you look at if you read the Grundrisse, you know, which are his notebooks, they're incomprehensible. I've tried to read them and they're incomprehensible because they're notebooks. They're notes to himself. <laughs> and therefore it doesn't but he and he spent a long time writing capital. And capital was the mode of exposition. And so it, it, the analysis is in the Grundrisse. But capital is the mode of exposition of how do you make that? And he was very conscious. And, you know, capital is a wonderfully, you know, um, uh, accessible work, except for the first chapter. <laughs> you know, 
first chapter is a little bit difficult, but other, other than that, but it's this, this again this separation between the mode of analysis and the mode of exposition, and again that that's largely what drives you know the way we think about films at you know at, at MEF, uh, and that means you really got to think about the audience. You've got to do the research. You've got to do the hard work of okay, this is. Um, but we also you know the other thing that and we're often criticised for is that you know we're not just representing every voice. So our documentaries are not well. Someone says this, and you know, there's an opposition voice here. You know, we want to. We think we we there's a point of view documentary. It's a point we've done the research, and we and and it's not propaganda that we're propag- you know that we're doing. This is what the you know this is what the research shows, and we're going to argue this, and we're going to back it up. We're going to show you exactly exactly why we're why we're arguing it. So it's not quite an academic. It's not quite you know an academic book. Um, but there's a lot of that that goes into the kind of films we do. The, the, any, anyone who does a film actually has to has to do that. Sorry, that that was a long answer to to. No, question. not at all. Greatly appreciated. I didn't expect the Grundrisse that would be a crucial <laughs> reference. And my last question before throwing to you is to put this to you: You mentioned what we would call the need for the second emancipation in the United States, the enslavement into prisons of, in particular, African-American men, but also black women and, and some other minorities as well. And I put it to you, as some lawyers like to say, that one element here that's interesting, I mean, horrifying, is that if we look back to the 60s and the civil rights movements in the United States and their eventual support by someone who had been a committed segregationist and racist in LBJ. That is the beginning of the end for the Democrats in the South, as he knew when he signed those pieces of legislation into law. But it's also the moment of the Southern strategy that the Republicans devise. And then the next big moment politically is the late 70s, early 80s with the Sunbelt strategy. And these are two strategies for those outside the U.S. The U.S. is about 40 percent of listenership, so between 30 and 40 percent of listenership. Sat because, you know, my surveillance agents are constantly at work. These are strategies that are to do with the Nixon victory in 68 and the Reagan victory in 80 that are about targeting a kind of white panic about the prospect of black power, as you were explaining it. It seems to me that one transformation that's occurred since is that despite the Republican Party's fetishization of the police and the military in the US, it it could no longer lay claim to be the party of law and order because essentially many bits of it, particularly the formation associated with Donald J. Trump, reject any finding by any court that it doesn't like engage in the kind of politics of spectacle that if we, in inverted commas, did it, would see us our being denounced. And that what has happened, in a sense, is that there's a new kind of white rage that is emerging that is part of the establishment of the Republican Party in overt ways. So I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. 
little provocation. I mean, you've laid it out very well, very eloquently. Uh, and that, you know, the Republican Party no longer, the old Republican Party no longer exists. Okay, it's now being taken over by the cult of Trump. <laughs> um, that is essentially, it's, it's, it's a, not entirely. Uh, I mean, again, I think at the center of Trumpism, um, again, I think in one sense, you know, the same way we said about Thatcher, she may never have read Gramsci, but she understood. I think, I think, you know, it's, it's a strange thing to say, but I think Trump understands that there is a great deal of pain in white America and white identity, in that what was, you know, in that the, their position of super, the ideological, economic superiority, ideological superiority, and that has been challenged. That's been challenged by, you know, the, the way the, the conjuncture has changed. Uh, that's been challenged by, you know, globalization of labor. Again, white labor isn't necessary in the same way that it was before. And that has caused real pain. And what he has recognized is that this pain is real, at least for a section of the, of the, of the, of the white working class, which is the kind of core, which is what makes the difference in many of these states. <laughs> And that he has talked about it. And I think that's the prop that the, 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 the Democrats are living in some fantasy world where they think everything is fine and you know, no one is in pain and the economy is great. But he recognizes that there is this pain and he's given a solution to it. And he says the problem is it's these black people. It's these, it's these immigrants who are coming over there to taking your jobs and I'll protect you. At, at some points, he also says it's corporations. And, you know, when he's... When he's, you know, he said it's actually a source of corporations as well, but he doesn't really mean that. He does. I mean, he kind of says that, but but his his actions in in office have nothing to do with that. But he recognizes that pain. He recognizes that the what the the the, the kind of the re, that's the reality. That's the reality of the base of it. And so, no matter how how idiotic or you know, how dangerous what he says is about the solution, it's responding to something real. And and he's, he's also right. recognized the reality of the suffering of that group and others at the hands of so-called liberal internationalism. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, and, and there's a, there's a there's growing black and, you know, Latino support for, for yep. Trump as well. Yep, yep. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's, at... not simply, it's not simply, you know, uh, you know uh, white supremacy that's going on. Um, I mean, that's part of this. This is what's really scary about this, about this kind of fascist mode. I mean, what we're seeing is this great split within the elite class. Now, there's no, there's no it's, this is not about, you know, class conflict. This is about an inter-class conflict uh, within, you know, within the elite and the rise of, of, of fascism. Um, it, and, it's, and it's a very, very dangerous moment, you know, for this, um, which is why, that's, like I said, one of the things at the start, you know, this, these, all these crises coming together, at the same time, all this, you know, the world is, I mean, it's not, and it's not just America, right? That's the thing. Neoliberalism, the transfer had effects everywhere. It's had effects in Hungary. It's had effects in France. It's effects, you know, Brexit. How do you explain Brexit? How do you explain Brexit other than this idea, this notion that you know our superiority, that our notion of this is you know, is under under threat, and the only way to do that is so. This these are these are you know global movements, which is what he, which is what even you know, and in Argentina, you know, I mean, these, this is why it's even more worrying. Um, so when we talk about conjunction now, I think we're talking about a global conjunction. It's not even just talking about, I mean, there's specific ways in which it works out, 
you know, what happens in the U.S. is different than what happens in Britain or what happens in, you know, in France, what happens in Brazil, whatever. But they're, they're all responding to these big global changes. Um, and I, I mean, I think we could be potentially in the middle of, a, of you know, open civil war in the U.S., uh, where it's going to be, you know, white supremacists who are armed to the teeth because they think it's their it's their God given right to own weapons, you know, because of because of the Second Amendment, and you know, and and the rest, and the rest will be as as you said, will be the police, will be I mean, the people will be fighting will will won't be it won't be a class conflict. It's going to be an inter it's going to be an interclass com uh, intra class conflict uh, that is happening. Again, we could go. We could. I mean, that, these are more complex issues. The more than that, but that, that's that's the broad. What what you identified, I think, was absolutely accurate. Uh, and then the question then is, it, the the great tragedy. Not tra- tragedy is the wrong word, but you know, in the last um, uh, or the the, the the election before last or the the primaries, you know, there was a left wing version of not of Trump. But someone who was talking about the same things, so and giving a left-wing answer that was Bernie Sanders, <laughs> who said, and you know, and he, if, if you let Bernie loose on these, you know, white working-class you know, people who are really, you know, angry about what's happened to them economically, he will transform them into socialists because he can say, yes, your pain is real, just the way Trump said, and the solution to it is. Socialism. The solution to them is not fascism. <laughs> the solution to it is a is an is a interracial you know social movement where you join with your black brothers and sisters because they have the same interests that you do. And that's why you have to be silenced. That's why the Democrats, you know, essentially you know, um, and he and he surrendered. I mean, that was that's also the sad part that in, when he when he lost the primary, uh, he essentially was bought off by Biden. Biden said, "I'll listen to you." Come inside, <laughs> come inside. I'll, I'll, I'll pretend I'm listening to you instead of building the social movement outside. And so there is a possibility of these social movements outside as well. I, I, that's again, you, you, we started off there. You started off there. And in addition to the, you know, the pessimism, there is these great, you know, when when the George Floyd, um, uh, you know, murder took place. I mean, I saw demonstrations in America. I never thought I would see of young people. High school students talking about race and about police violence. Uh, it, it dissipated, but that that it's there, and and young people especially are going to have a different relationship to the American dream than past generations did. And so, yes, that is there. That that is why I think the the the, the policing, the 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 solution of, of police and of prisons is going to be less racialized in the future. Uh, it's going to be, and anyway, it never it never was race. It was always you know the, what the black people were the most dangerous at that time. But it's they're lined up to lock away anyone. Yeah. Sorry, can I, I'll just play one more thing just to, just as a way of. Um, so I, I've talked about Stuart a lot, right? And, I, and for for me, Stuart Hall um, and this notion of translation for me that that's what's kind of driven it. That you got to how do you make work accessible so it becomes so that intellectual work can become a material force beyond the six people that read articles in the academy <laughs> how did it become a material force you know among them? and the other one is noam chomsky 
Um, you know, Chomsky is coming to the end of his life, the greatest intellectual of the last hundred years, uh, with that, without any doubt <laughs> in my mind. But he also talks about, you know, that what 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 citizens of the democratic societies have to do is engage in a course of intellectual self-defense. That first of all, you have to understand the world. <laughs> and once you understand it, then you have to use your own ethical and moral principles to guide your actions in it. But that understanding of the world is the key thing. That intellectual self-defense is the key thing. And, I, and that's what I, I mean, if I had to say, if I you know, pick two figures or you know, two ideas that drove my, drive, drives my work and that drives the work of, of the Media Education Foundation, it's that. It's Chomsky, intellectual self-defense. It's for how do you make how do you make intellectual ideas a material force in the social world out there? Beautifully put. Is there anything you'd like to add, Sat? I think that the addition of Chomsky is a nice way to sign off. Uh, no, we could talk about a lot of things, but I think that that gets the the, the core of what I'm uh, what I'd like to say. Beautiful. So for over 30 years, things you've written and recorded and filmed in different ways have had an enormous impact on me and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of others, because of that sort of transition of translation that you've just described. And as always, when I encounter your work today, I learned a lot and I'm deeply appreciative. Thank you. Okay, it, was, it was great fun talking to you. <laughs>